We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 29 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, March 31st, 2021, the day after the Final Four has been set. It will be Baylor-Houston and Gonzaga-UCLA, the 11-seeded Bruins knocking off one-seeded Michigan on Tuesday night, and thus endeth the season for the mighty Big Ten that perhaps got exposed in this NCAA tournament as being not so mighty. But welcome aboard. It is the final day of March. It is the final day before baseball's opening day. And it is the day after the official expansion of the NFL regular season. This was long overdue. And honestly, I wish we were going a step further. I want an 18-game season, not a 17-game season. But I'll take this. Our NFL lives forever changed on Tuesday, with the owners, as expected, voting to approve 
the 17-game schedule. So our language now changes, right? Like, is a 10-win season still a very good season? Does 10-7 and feel like a really good year the way that 10-6 and has been a very good year? What about the opposite? Washington went 7-9 and in 2020. If Washington goes 7-10 and in 2021, is that like a major disappointment? Or is that more or less the same as in 2020? I mean, after all, Washington's schedule appears to be a lot harder than again, 7-10 and in 2021. That is technically right, a double-digit lost season. Uh, no more 500 records, at, at least without a tie. Like you could go, I guess, 8-8-1, eight, eight, and one, but putting ties aside, 8-9, and 9-8. Nine, nine and eight. That's as close to 500 as most teams are going to be. Anyway, I've got a lot to say about the new NFL regular season, including what I wish the NFL would do with its regular season beyond 18 games. I have put together for you a proposal for what the NFL regular season should be. I'll give that to you in just a bit. Now, the official approval for the 17-game schedule came on Tuesday at at what's known as the NFL's annual league meeting, the owners' meetings, being conducted virtually again this year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking of that, the commissioner, Roger Goodell, on Tuesday saying that the league expects to have full stadiums during the 2021 season. Uh Uh-oh, you know there's going to be a whole lot of opinion spouting on that one. But for me, I was thrilled to see that. This is, to me, the latest in the great job that the NFL has done during the pandemic. I'm going to get into that on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast as well. I have a special guest for you on this Wednesday. Former Washington receiver Anthony Armstrong is going to join me with all of the activity for Washington at receiver so far this offseason. I wanted to get Anthony on to talk about what Washington has at receiver. Anthony's a smart guy, still follows the team. So we'll talk Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Ryan Fitzpatrick too. And we'll do some story time from Anthony's three seasons with Washington, 2009 through 2011, including some great stuff on Sexy Rexy, Rex Grossman. I'll talk Capitals and Wizards off their losses on Tuesday night. And yes, with opening day, just a day away, I will present to you the biggest questions in 2021 for both the Nationals and the Orioles. The questions that will determine the true fate of each team's season. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. So speaking of tweets, did you see the tweet from the Washington football team on Tuesday? The Washington football entertainment team has released its audition schedule for the 2021 season, i.e., the tryout schedule for the co-ed dance squad. Remember, we had the news about a month ago that Washington is discontinuing its cheerleader program, and that apparently was news to the cheerleaders who were not happy about this, but is going now with a co-ed dance squad. Guys and gals, men and women, dancing together in support of the Fighting Dannys during home games coming up in 2021. All you need to do is click on the link and you go to a WashingtonFootball.com page on which you can register. And it turns out that the Washington Football Entertainment Team is holding open auditions for the co-ed dance squad Saturday, May 8th. Check in at 10 a.m. 10.30 a.m. is the start time. And callbacks and final selections will be held on Sunday, May 9th. And the team says those interested in joining should register by Saturday, May 1st at 11.59 p.m. So yes, get on it. Hurry up and register. You got a little more than a month here. We're getting close to the co-ed dance squad auditions. It means you're close. Register now because we're getting close.
It means you're close. That's right, Brucey. We are getting close. The co-ed dance squad is being formed. I love it. I can't wait to see it. All right, speaking of things we can't wait to see, more meaningful football. Who doesn't want that? Major change coming to the NFL, just like major change is happening in local real estate. If I asked you, what's the worst part about selling your home? Chances are you say the commission that you got to pay a chunk of the money coming to you to somebody else. Outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate for way too long. That's changing thanks to John Grandland. John G with Real Broker is selling your home for free. That's right, for free. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer and you agree on a sale, the money you normally pay your listing agent stays in your pocket. Zero commission. You can't go lower than zero. John is changing the way homes are sold in the DMV. And John will help you find the home of your dreams so you're good to go with your next home. Expansive, high-level services at the lowest commission possible, zero. Again, this is game-changing. To find out more about this program, to find your home's value, visit johngsellsforfree.com. I love that website. It's perfect. It says it all, and it rhymes. johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call John Granlin. He's a big sports fan, big supporter of this podcast. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. The phone number, 703 703- Five three seven six seven four seven. That's seven zero three five three seven six seven four seven. John Grandland, zero commission. All right. So, like we discussed, NFL owners on Tuesday at the annual league meeting, the owners' meetings taking place virtually due to the pandemic, approving the expansion of the regular season to seventeen games per team. Now, this had been expected, uh, as you likely already knew. That new collective bargaining agreement that had been approved last offseason, owners approved it in February of 2020, players ratified it March 2020, included two big things in terms of the way the season is done. Number one, the addition of two teams to the playoff field for at least the 2020 season, and also an option to increase the regular season to 17 games beginning with the 2021 season, both things have gone into effect here. The season now will be a 17-game season. This is a big deal, not just from a standpoint of what we're used to, a 16-game season is now 17 games, but also the NFL rarely alters its regular season. This is the first change to the NFL's regular season schedule, essentially, in three-plus decades. You had this 16-game regular season over 17 weeks for basically the last 31 years, 1990 through 2020. Now, I say basically because in 1993, as you may recall, we had two bye weeks. You had a 16-game season over 18 weeks in 1993. But, you know, beyond that, you've had the same setup for three-plus decades, 90 through 20, 16 games over 17 weeks. Now, the NFL schedule has changed over the years. Uh, From 1947 through 1960, you had 12-game regular seasons. From 1961 through 1977, you had 14-game regular seasons with the exception of 1966 when you had 14 games over 15 weeks. And then from 1978 through 1989, you had 16 game regular seasons, uh, but no buys. Uh, and then of course, you know, within that frame, you did have those two strike shortened years, 1982 and 1987, when of course our team, the Washington football team, uh, won two Super Bowls. But anyway, this doesn't happen often. It is 
happening now. So the composition of the 17 game schedule, six intra division games, two games against each of the three other teams in your division, four games against a designated division within your conference. So for Washington and the rest of the NFC East teams in 2021, that division is the NFC South. Four games against a designated division in the opposite conference. For Washington and the rest of the NFC East teams in 21, that division is the AFC West. And then two games against teams from the two remaining divisions in your conference. One game at home and one game on the road. Those matchups based on division ranking from the previous season. So this is where where you finish the previous year matters. As I've pointed out, the whole thing about a first place schedule has been way overrated for years because 14 of your 16 games had already been predetermined, okay? So the idea of like, well, you're playing a first place schedule as opposed to a last place schedule over 16 games, that only impacted two opponents. That was it. Now, going to 17 games, that does increase that number to three opponents because the 17th game is based on your cross-conference division from two years prior. The 2021 matchup is based on 2020 standings with AFC teams hosting for 2021. So it gets a little confusing, but it makes sense if you actually parse out what I just said there. And bottom line for Washington in 2021, this added game, this 17th game, it won't necessarily be the 17th game on the schedule, but this 17th opponent is a game at the Buffalo Bills, who finished first in the AFC East in 2020. The two games determined by Washington finishing first in the NFC East in terms of those two intra-conference games are games against the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field and at the Green Bay Packers. So, Washington having won the NFC East in 2020 is meaning games against Seattle at FedEx Field, at Green Bay, and at Buffalo. So yes, that does, at least in theory, stiffen the schedule for the Washington football team in 2021. I'm not a big believer in playing the schedule game in March when so many things can change between now and September to say nothing of, you know, October, November, December as the season goes on. Who's injured? Who's playing well? Who isn't? Never forget the portion of the Washington 2020 schedule that everyone feared. That three game stretch in which you had three consecutive road games at the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, at the Pittsburgh Steelers, at the San Francisco 49ers. Nobody on the planet expected Washington to do well during that stretch. In fact, most people thought Washington would go 0-3 during that stretch. And of course, what happened last year during that stretch? Washington went 3-0. and And why was that? Well, Dallas was without Dak Prescott. Pittsburgh ended up going down the tubes as the season went on. San Francisco had to play that game against Washington in Arizona, and the 49ers were an injury-ravaged mess for so much of 2020. So you don't know what appears to be a gauntlet in March can end up being a cakewalk come November and December. Like, you just don't know. So I don't like to do the thing of, oh my God, this schedule is so tough, and oh my God, you got to play against Seattle and at Green Bay and at Buffalo, and golly gee, what's going to happen? Like, yeah, it doesn't look easy now, but let's see kind of how the season goes. And you know what? Maybe those teams should be fearing our team. How about that? All right, don't laugh when I say that. Maybe those teams should be in fear of our team. And what Chase Young and Montez Sweat and Kendall Fuller and William Jackson III and Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel and Terry McLaurin, the harm all those guys are going to inflict on those teams come this upcoming season. But yeah, man, no doubt, uh, the schedule does appear to be a lot harder 
in 2021. And one of the real undeniable realities for Washington in 2020 was Washington faced a lot of weak quarterbacks. Like there's no, there's no question about that. You know, you're, you're, you're spewing facts if you say that among the quarterbacks who Washington faced in 2020, remember Carson Wentz, who was a shell of his former self, Andy Dalton, and then Ben DiNucci, uh, Ryan Finley in place of the injured Joe Burrow, Andy Dalton again, Nick Mullins, Nate Sudfeld, remember, in place of the bench Jalen Hurts, right? That week 17 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football to clinch the division. So yeah, man, like Washington definitely benefited from playing some uber weak quarterbacks in 2020. That figures to change in 2021. Again, we'll see who's healthy, who's playing well, how the season is evolving. But just getting beyond the three games I just referenced determined by Washington having won the NFC East in 2021 uh, and those three quarterbacks who Washington is going to be facing, right? So those three quarterbacks, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, not easy. You look at what Washington is facing in 2021 beyond those three quarterbacks in those three games. So presumably Dak Prescott is healthy. So you're facing him again twice against the Dallas Cowboys. You're facing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field, i.e. Tom Brady. You're facing the Kansas City Chiefs at FedEx Field, i.e. Patrick Mahomes. You're facing the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, i.e. Justin Herbert. You're facing the Las Vegas Raiders on the road, i.e. Derek Carr, who's had back-to-back very good seasons. You're facing the Atlanta Falcons on the road. Uh, In theory, Matt Ryan. We'll see what the Falcons do uh, from a draft standpoint, but that doesn't figure to be easy. Ryan can still play. So yeah, like if everyone's healthy, it's not an easy run against opposing quarterbacks. So Washington's defense is going to be tested here with his upcoming schedule. So I'm happy the NFL is going to 17 games, but I wish the NFL was going to 18 games. Here to me is what the NFL's regular season schedule should be. So we know we're going to 17 regular season games. The preseason, by the way, is being cut to three games. First of all, the NFL should take it a step further. It should be 18 regular season games with two preseason games. To me, each team's preseason schedule, get it down to two games. Nobody likes the preseason. I know there is some value in the preseason in terms of teams trying to figure out the back ends of rosters, but by and large, you can do that over the course of training camp and two preseason games. So, you know, you can have the two teams play in the Hall of Fame game. Those two teams can end up playing three preseason games that year. But otherwise, two preseason games per team each summer. Each team should be playing 18 regular season games. It's always been funny to me that the NFL is by far the most popular pro sports league in this country, and yet by far has the shortest season, right? I mean, think about it. The NFL season is five months, September to February. The MLB season is seven months, April to October. The NBA season is seven and a half months, November to mid-June. The NHL season is eight and a half months, October to mid-June. Now, the NBA and NHL schedules may be changing uh, permanently with all the disruptions caused by COVID-19. But for now, like this is what we've had here for years. There's no reason that the NFL can't have more product. The season is immensely popular and yet goes by in a blur. Most popular pro sports league in this country by miles and yet shortest season in this country among the big four major pro sports leagues by miles. You can say that less is more, and there may be something to that, but a little bit more isn't going to like ruin people's desire to watch the NFL. In fact, a little bit more might increase the desire. It should be an 18-game regular season 
I would do two bye weeks. More on that in a moment. So that would make it a 20-week regular season plus the five-week postseason. That makes for a 25-week season. That's close to six months. That, to me, is more like it. And yes, the Super Bowl would be taking place deep into February. Super Bowl already now going to be a week later uh, because of the expansion to 17 games. But what's the big deal if the Super Bowl is in very late February? What would be the big deal if the Super Bowl was in early March? Like, what is the rush here? And you think about this, you could make it so that Super Bowl weekend falls on President's Day weekend. This has been talked about for years. Have it so that people, at least most people, are off the day after the Super Bowl. Who wouldn't want that? Super Bowl weekend being a holiday weekend every year. Now, in order to compensate for the dangers of an 18-game regular season with today's players being bigger, stronger, faster, I would make two concessions to the players. Number one is the installation of two bye weeks. This would obviously allow for more recovery time and for each team season to breathe a bit. I think there's something to that of, okay, you play a bunch of games, then you got a week off. Then you play a bunch more games, and then you have another week off. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Again, what is the rush to get to the end of the NFL season? The only time we've had the two buys was in that 1993 season, like I said. That was, by the way, not a good year for Washington. Washington went 4-12 uh, and in 1993. That was Richie Pettibone's lone season as Washington's head coach. Now, Washington's bye weeks that year came in weeks four and eight. I would do away with these super early buys. That's another thing. Uh, there is a major competitive advantage to having a like mid-season buy versus having an early season buy. And I don't really understand why the NFL starts having its bye weeks so early each season. It's a competitive disadvantage when your buy is in week five. So to me, with the regular season now being 20 weeks, I would have no buys earlier than week six. I would condense buys into four-week clusters, week six through nine, and weeks 13 through 16. Don't worry about too many teams being off at once. The NFL has a ton of product. There would be plenty of games on Sundays during those designated bye weeks. As things stand now with 17 games over 18 weeks, I still think the NFL should make it so that bye weeks happen in a brief period of time. Like to me, 17-game schedule over 18 weeks, all buys should take place between weeks 8 through 11. Like, that's it. Weeks 8, 9, 10, and 11. Over those four weeks, you do every team's buy. I think it's ridiculous that the NFL does buys as early as the league does. I don't know why that's the case. I think that's got to stop. Do all the buys for this upcoming season, weeks 8 through 11. This way you get rid of the competitive disadvantage when a team has a super early buy. Like, you know, you need recovery time as the season goes on, what good truly does a week five buy do for you? And unless it just happens to be like a really key guy got hurt in week four and was going to miss a week five game anyway, you know, that kind of a thing. A second concession of the players that I would make for an 18 game regular season would be the expansion of the 53 man roster. Longer regular seasons obviously are going to mean more injuries. Longer regular seasons, though, are also going to mean more money for teams. There's no reason you can't add, say, four spots to the roster. You know, go from a 53-man roster to a 57-man roster. And I tell you something else, and this has been one of my biggest pet peeves in all of sports for years. No more of these dopey game day inactives. Everybody is active. It has never made sense to me why you have a 53-man roster, but only 46 players can actually play in a given game. Why each week is a team forced to try to play fortune teller 
and see, okay, we're not going to need too many guys at this position group, but we're going to need more guys at that position group. You have no idea how the game is going to go. You have no idea who's going to stay healthy. Everyone should be active. You're paying these guys. They've been practicing for you in theory. Like, have them all active. I, I don't understand why the NFL has insisted on this for years. You got to have seven game day inactives. Why? Just have all 53 guys active for every game. And then a final thing that I would like to see the NFL do, and I don't know that the NFL will ever do this, and I don't know from a television standpoint if the NFL could even do this, right? NFL just uh, signing those multi-billion dollar media rights deals with Fox, CBS, NBC, ESPN, ABC, Amazon. You're looking at 10 plus billion dollars per year coming to the NFL as soon as all those media rights deals kick in. So first of all, at the very least, the NFL to me needs to have a more even distribution of one o'clock games versus four o'clock games. The NFL regular season has way too many games that start at 1 p.m. Eastern on Sundays and way too few games that start in the 4 p.m. Eastern hour. Uh, I, you know, I, I get why the NFL does this because you want kind of this exclusivity in the 4 p.m. hour window and you want, you know, certain games to pop and you want that like national TV game each week on Fox or CBS later on Sunday, but it's really too much, I think. There are too many early games and too few later games, and what can happen, and this happens, I think, more often than people realize, is you get a bunch of clunkers in that 4 o'clock window, and in the 1 o'clock window, you have, like, too much. You know, there's, like, too much to consume. If you want people to spend their money on, say, the DirecTV Sunday ticket package, or you want people to be going out to sports bars and watching, you know, all the games going on, it's like it's almost like it's too much to consume. So spread it out a little more. I think the NFL, at the very least, should do that. But what I would really like to see done, and again, I don't know from a television contract standpoint if the NFL could do this, but what I think would be so cool and so fun would be if the NFL tried out an NCAA tournament-like setup where you have games starting every 15 minutes or so. Staggered start times. So you have a game that kicks off at 1, and then another game that kicks off at 1.15, and then another game that kicks off at 1.30, and then 1.45, and then 2, and then 2.15, etc. I think that would be awesome. That would kind of give each game kind of its own window. You know, in theory, you could have like one game ending, and then another game ending, and then another game ending. I mean, I know you kind of can have that now, because not every game is the same length, obviously. But that, to me, is always one of the really cool things about the NCAA tournament. Those staggered start times, right? Those first two days, those first two days for the first round, every 15 minutes, you got one game happening, then another game happening, then another game happening. I think the NFL could really benefit from something like that. Like, hey, what time is Washington playing Dallas this Sunday? I don't know. Is it 2.15 or 2.30? Like, yeah, it could get a little confusing. I'll grant you that. But I think it's worth a shot. Uh, I, I think it could make NFL Sundays even better instead of just, you know, yeah, we have 10 1 o'clock games and three 4 o'clock games. Like, no, make it fun. Make it different. Spice it up a little bit with staggered start times. Where are you on that? Are you with me on NCAA tournament-like setups for NFL Sundays? Staggered start times. You tell me what you think. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So there were two major developments from the NFL's annual league meeting on Tuesday. The first was what we just got into, the expansion of the regular season. The second was what the commissioner had to say. Roger Goodell saying that the league expects to have full stadiums during the 2021 season off a 2020 in which so few fans were allowed to attend 
NFL games due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Goodell saying the NFL expects to have full stadiums, packed crowds during the 2021 season. I think this is great news. I was very happy when I saw that. Now, I say that recognizing that off a steep decline of COVID-19 cases in this country for weeks, things are starting to turn back up. So we're not out of the woods yet. You know, this thing of like the pandemic's over, it's not over. I can't wait till it's over, okay? We're all sick and tired of this thing. But yeah, like you got to stay vigilant. You got to continue to vaccinate people. But we are getting out of this, okay? It's, I mean, it's, it's not smooth. It's never easy. This thing is a biatch in terms of how quickly it can spread. And now you have to worry about these variants. So yeah, man, like I'm not here to tell you that it's done and we can go right back to the way things were in 2019. But we do recognize more and more people are getting vaccinated. And as that happens, you're going to continue to climb out of this thing. You know, you got, it's, it's like, you got to stay careful with it. Got to wear your mask and got to socially distance and all these types of things. But we are getting out of this. Okay. I know not everyone likes to say that, but it is the truth. And by the time we get to the start of the NFL regular season, I believe we will be out of this. All right. And I say that, you know, God willing and uh, crossing fingers and hoping that things go well, but I do believe that'll happen because at the end of the day, you're not going to beat out the vaccines. We have so many vaccines. They are very effective. They do seem to do well against these variants. The key is people getting vaccinated because the more the people get vaccinated, you not only mitigate the spread of this thing, but you also mitigate the ability for the virus to mutate. Okay. That's why getting vaccinated matters so much. It's not just about, okay, I'm fine now. I'm not going to get it. It's also about disallowing the virus from mutating because that's what the real concern is at this point, right? These variants and what they could end up being. So anyway, today, Wednesday is March 31st, 2021. It was one year ago today, March 31st, 2020, that ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter went on SportsCenter with Scott Van Pelt. And Schefter, in that appearance with SVP, talked about the 2020 NFL draft happening despite us as a country, quote, carrying out more bodies, end quote, and there being, quote, carnage in the streets of our cities, end quote. And I find it instructive to bring this up because I do believe the NFL has done a great job in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, despite so many saying that couldn't happen or wouldn't happen, despite people within the industry like Schefter yelling and screaming and spreading fear as Schefter did on that night one year ago today in March 31st, 2020. I I could not stand when Schefter spoke in the terms that he did. He used this inflammatory language. He spoke in a way that to me was way over the top, okay, and and, and does nothing but either scare people or completely turn people off. You know, carrying out more bodies, like really? You know, carnage in the streets of our cities, really? Now, we all know what ended up happening in New York, all right? And there's no doubt, Way too many people have died because of this thing. Hundreds of thousands of people in this country, millions of people across the world. It has been a tragedy. You cannot say it any other way. And that's why I keep coming back to this. And to me, it's so aggravating. We need to know as much as we can know about how this happened and why this happened so that this never happens again. You know, that World Health Organization report that came out about how they think COVID-19 started. You need more of that. You need a lot more of that, okay? And I don't believe anyone thinks for a second that the Chinese government is being completely transparent about this thing. But 
we need to understand this, how this happened, why this happened, so that this never happens again. Way too much suffering has happened because of this thing. Way too much devastation, health and economic has happened because of this thing. But anyway, even with that as a reality, I remember Schefter saying that. And I remember the pushback of so many of us. How is the NFL going to have its draft? You can't have your draft. Well, the NFL had its draft. Had its draft safely. The draft was very well received. And do you remember what the draft ended up doing? An average audience of over 8.4 million viewers watched the 2020 NFL draft over the three days across the ABC, ESPN, NFL Network, ESPN Deportes, and digital channel platforms. That smashed the previous high of 6.2 million viewers in 2019, a 35% increase for NFL draft viewership from 2019 to 2020. Draft viewership was already sky high in 2019. It was up 35% in 2020. Could you imagine if the NFL had followed the cries of Adam Schefter one year ago tonight and said, all right, we're out. We can't do this. There's going to be carnage in the streets. We're going to be carrying out more bodies. There's no way we can do the 2020 NFL draft. Well, the NFL did do the 2020 NFL draft. And I was so thankful that the NFL did the 2020 NFL draft. Then came training camp. You can't do training camp. No, the NFL did training camp. Then came the regular season. You can't do the regular season. No, actually, the NFL did the regular season. Then came the postseason. And more and more teams were actually welcoming fans to postseason games. Now, remember, the Washington football team did not. But ultimately, in the 2021 NFL playoffs, 10 of the 13 games had fans in attendance. Zero evidence that having fans at these games led to any kind of spread of COVID-19. You did an entire season in the midst of a pandemic. It was a very well-received season. It was a season that was conducted safely. It was a season that everyone was able to enjoy. Despite so many saying the NFL couldn't pull this off, the NFL did pull this off. And never forget this, and I brought this up on this podcast a few weeks ago, and I feel like so few have ever mentioned this. I wasn't even aware of this until I found it while researching some stuff on in-game spread of COVID-19. There was an article that came out this past January 25th by the Associated Press about the CDC, the CDC having published a scientific paper jointly authored with medical experts from the NFL and NFL Players Association detailing the efforts to complete the NFL's 2020 regular season and postseason without any canceled games due to COVID-19. So the CDC published a paper jointly authored with the NFL's medical experts because the NFL did such a great job with COVID-19. If that's not a testament to the job that the NFL has done with the pandemic, I don't know what is. And consider this from Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer. Quote, we have not seen any evidence of on-field transmission in NFL games or practices. I think that that is an important observation. It's certainly a question that many people raised before we started as to why that occurred. I think there are a number of theories that people have advanced. One of them is that obviously we're playing either in an open area or at least an extremely large air environment where we've got a lot of ventilation, a lot of movement, and likely quick dispersal of any droplets or particles, end quote. So it's not just that the NFL had its season. It's not just that the NFL had its season without any canceled games. It's that the NFL ended up doing such a good job that the CDC saw fit to publish a scientific paper jointly authored with the NFL's medical experts 
And one of the things in that paper is that a thing that a lot of people worried about? And I understand why people worried about that. I wondered about this too. But in-game spread, like, you know, 11 on 11, and you've got guys sweating and guys grabbing at each other and tackling each other and, you know, spewing all kinds of vile at each other. And isn't the virus going to spread? No, zero evidence of in-game spread with COVID-19. The NFL throughout the pandemic has behaved boldly, aggressively, and without apology. But the NFL throughout the pandemic also has behaved responsibly, safely, and effectively. And you can do all of those things. There's no doubt with COVID-19, you've got to behave safely. You've got to behave responsibly. This is a very serious thing. Hundreds of thousands of people in this country have died. Millions of people have died across the world. None of this should have ever happened. But at the same time, you can't behave out of fear. You can't behave with an attitude of, we can't. You can't behave with an attitude of, shut everything down and don't do anything until this thing is completely eradicated. To me, the right approach has always been, okay, we have this monumental challenge in front of us. How are we going to handle this? How are we going to tackle this? How are we going to continue to do what we'd like to do as best as we can do it while maintaining safety and while protecting especially the vulnerable? You figure it out. That's what so much of life is about, right? Circumstances are almost never ideal, but you figure it out. You find a way to get the job done. And the NFL has found a way, just like, by the way, the other major pro sports leagues in this country have found a way. Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL, all four of the big four have done a good job with the pandemic. And that's not just about the leagues doing a good job. That's also about the coaches doing a good job, the medical staffs doing a good job, and the players doing a good job. By and large, I think athletes have done a good job with this pandemic. You know, not everyone has been great, okay? We did have a quarterback in this area have a maskless party with strippers late in the NFL season. But by and large, by and large, I think players have done a good job. So it is so fitting to me that today is the one-year anniversary of the famous Adam Schefter carnage in the streets comments, because here we are now talking about the NFL having full stadiums in 2021. And if you want to dismiss that, if you want to be mad about that, if you want to say the NFL has no chance of doing that or shouldn't be doing that, have at it, all right? I mean, everyone can have his or her own opinion. But to me, the NFL can make this work because the NFL has been making things work. And so if your reaction to what Roger Goodell said on Tuesday is, no way can the NFL have full stadiums in 2021, my reaction is, why not? The NFL has done a great job so far. The NFL deserves the benefit of the doubt that the league will continue to do a very good job. All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now, former Washington receiver Anthony Armstrong, Triple A, as he was known. His middle name begins with A. was with Washington for three seasons, 2009 through 2011. In 2010, was number three in the NFL in yards per catch. Anthony, it's great to have you on, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's my birthday, actually. So, um, like, that's a good thing, number one. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's good to hear those stats, too. Sometimes it, you don't you forget that. It's been what over ten years. Never, 10 years. never forget that. So happy birthday, first of all. It's a great uh, day to have you on here. But yeah, man, I was gonna say that is one of those great things that no one can ever take from you. Top three in the NFL for a season in yards per catch. That's terrific. Yeah, behind. I mean, you got great the greats that are up there too. I mean, you think like Deshaun Jackson, and he just signed another deal. Yeah. And, you know, 
Mike Wallace at that time, and he was he was a deep threat that was out there. So that was big. I'm kind of mad I didn't get to do it more. Often. <laughs> well, That's I want okay. I want to get to what went down that year with you in just a little bit, but. I know you still follow the Washington football team. and I thought this would be a great time to get you on because there has been all this activity for Washington at the receiver position so far this offseason. But before we tackle that, though, just generally speaking, you know, watching what Washington is doing, Ron Rivera going into his second season, roster overhauled, 7-9 and nine last year, but an NFC East title. Uh, what are your general impressions of what the Washington football team has been up to? I'm very impressed. And it's a, it's a, it's an overall top to bottom, like everything is getting changed and it's going in the right direction. I mean, you go from the front office moves, um, Julie Donaldson, Jason Wright, you know, uh, Tim Hightower, like all those people, that's a beautiful thing on the, on that side of the office. And then when you go to the football field, you know, they're, they're building something that's, that you can see that the recipe, there's a good chef in there. He's got a good recipe and we're, and we're finding all the right pieces. So I, I'm, I'm excited about what I'm seeing. Yeah, I'm with him, man. It, it does feel like things are in fact on track. So at receiver, of course, things start with Terry McLaurin. Uh, wondering about your impressions of him. We know he's good. How good is he in your opinion? Like is Terry McLaurin to you say like a top 10 receiver in the NFL? Is it more like top 20? Is it maybe as high as top five? Like, how do you view Terry in relation to the other great receivers in the NFL? I think, I think Terry, he doesn't get his due, you know. Um, and I think that's just, you know, being being in Washington, sometimes that happens. You kind of get put behind in the back burner. Everybody else gets a lot of attention. But, I mean, if you think about it, he's been the primary target for the past two seasons. And he's been productive for the past two seasons. And regardless of what people may say, the kid's a superstar. And the fact that you can produce when teams know that this is – Probably who they're going to go to, you know, 80, 85% of the time and still ball that he's a good player. Um, top 10, I, I would have to go down a list because I feel like, I feel like it changes every year, but he, he's definitely on the cusp of being in that conversation of top 10. I'll give him top 15. Um, so put him in that 11 to 15 range, but he's, he's quickly on the ascent. Uh, you adding in Curtis Samuel is going to help him improve as well. So I'm excited for what the kid can do. Yeah, definitely. With McLaurin, as a guy who obviously played receiver in the NFL, what would you say impresses you the most about Terry McLaurin? That kid's so polished. Like, from his rookie year, the way he handled himself on the field, and then last season when they when he spoke after the game, like, that was some vet stuff. Like, that's like, you know, London Fletcher, Lorenzo Alexander, you know, those type of guys that people look up to, you know. Uh, he's he's a young leader. He, he probably gonna have a C on his jersey next year. He would deserve it. Um, but he's he's so polished. And I mean, frankly, he is so much a better receiver than me. Like I was a fast guy, and I was figuring it out as I went through my career. If we're being real, uh, he comes into the guy. I wish I came into the game with that type of precision running routes and the speed. I might still be out there at 38. You get what I'm saying? Hey, but he's a good. He's awesome. He's a really good receiver. They've been trying to add to their receiver depth this offseason, so maybe they give you a phone call, man. You, you never know. I, I'm glad, though, you, you brought up speed because, like you said, you were a fast receiver. Terry McLaurin is a fast receiver. Curtis Samuel, a fast receiver. Like, those guys had really good 40 times at their combines. How much does speed matter for a receiver? Oh, I mean, here's the thing. The thing about the league is teams are going to find out how they respect you. Okay, if you're fast and you see people back up, that means they respect your speed. 
Now, you know, you go back to when I was playing. I remember the 2011 season distinctly, walking, going on the field against uh, New England. And everybody saw me, and they were like 13, 13, 13. The safety was probably 30 yards deep. The corner was about 20 yards deep. And when I'm running a deep route, that basically negates me. Now, on the flip side, you know, it does create holes in the zones. So having a fast receiver that actually will get down the field um, is going to make make other players better. Logan Thomas will probably eat a lot more. Um, anybody in the slot, Adam Humphreys. Uh, but then if you have a quarterback that can get the ball down there, that's the second part. Having a fast receiver and then having the balls to throw it. Those are the two things. Usually we don't get them together. Uh, luckily, Fitzpatrick will let that sucker go. So uh, it's going to affect this offense a lot. We were very horizontal last year, um, horizontal, dink and dunk type of a vibe. But if we're able to push the ball downfield, I think this, this offense has just can do whatever they want. No question, man. Need more explosive plays. And obviously Washington is trying to cultivate more of those things. You referenced Adam Humphreys. It would appear he'll be the primary slot guy. I mean, you never know how things shape out with that. But uh, what would you think about Washington signing Humphreys last week? I mean, he's feeling the need of, of getting in there in the slot. You know, so I mean, it, it's it's one of those things that all the signings, they all make sense. They're not big splashes, but they make sense because you can see them saying, hey, we're going to put him in the slot. He's going to work underneath. Logan Thomas is doing his thing. He's so athletic and he can do a, a very myriad of things. Now you got Samuel and McLaurin out there. You really can't double somebody. So now you're really going to affect to the defense what you're going to do. Um, a lot of, I expect a lot of creativity. I'm, I'm excited. I really am. I really like what, what I'm seeing. Talking with former Washington receiver Anthony Armstrong. So we hear people talk about the positions within the position of receiver all the time, right? Like who is the X? Who is the Y? Who is the Z? And, and I, I get they all have different meanings, but we nowadays are seeing guys line up all over the place. So like, you know, McLaurin, for instance, last season lined up on the outside, lined up tight, lined up in the slot, even lined up in the backfield a few times. I'm just curious, how significant to you is whether a receiver is an X, a Y, or a Z? Like, how much does that matter? You know, to me, I, I want, uh, I always would tell people I played receiver because I would line up everywhere. Um, if you get pigeonholed into one spot, uh, one, it kind of pushes you, pushes you down the depth chart because you, you're only, you can only do one thing. That's what they're thinking. He's only an X. He can only run plays from over here. And I've, I remember playing, like, breaking the huddle with a receiver. And it, it was one time like, hey, you're an X, but now you got to go to Z, and they would be completely thrown off. And in and, and some systems, you know, uh, the route concepts are slightly different. Trying to get people open uh, at, from the X position versus the Z position is different because you can do motions and shifts and things of that nature. But I want somebody that can do it all, frankly. I want somebody that can run the routes, get deep, you know, just wherever I'm at, I can create a matchup with him. Uh, versatility is is going to make it, it's going to give you so many more options, right? Like if I are, if I know somebody can only run deep, then they're like, okay, he's going to run a go, and then the defense is going to just wash that off. You don't want that. You don't want, you don't want to be that type of guy. So I used to do a radio show with Chris Cooley, and I'll never forget him saying this once, that if he ran a team, every receiver would be an X, a Y, and a Z. That like everyone would be able to play every spot at receiver and there would be no more of this like you're an x you're a y you're a z you know or if one guy goes down well now we need another z because our primary z went down is that feasible like can teams be run that way to where just every receiver can play at any different spot or not really absolutely i think it is i mean there's some there are going to be 
some guys that, you know, you can say, okay, he's just not good at this from this position. But you need to know what to do schematically, right? I mean, if I just show you a play and I just say draw up the play, Al, and, and you're going to say, okay, this and this and this. I don't matter what the letters are underneath, right? Like if I just give you the play and you draw it up, that's it. So when I would study, I would I would draw up the entire play and I would just learn the entire thing. And that made it so much easier instead of trying to figure out just where does this one spot fit. Um, so can you be feasible and do that? Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's I think that's more of a new school thing. You know, people that play, they want to do that. Old school cats that you'll see like real big, uh, well, fast X's, big receivers at the Z because they'll motion in and have to crack safeties and linebackers and stuff like that. Um, that's the normal. That's what you would normally see. Now yeah. it's like, hey, put, a, put, the, put the player anywhere because we're going to create a matchup anyways. You referenced Washington's newest quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick. We know what he's known for, man, slinging it all over the place, getting vertical. What do you think about Washington bringing Fitzmagic on board? You know, honestly, I was – he didn't really cross my mind because I was like, well, you know, I think there was – obviously they were shooting a shot at everybody, you know. And I thought, I thought Mariota was going to be a good option too. Um, but the way that the team is built, like I referenced a few times, you got a lot of youth, you got a lot of young leaders, you know. So Ryan is going to go in there. He's not, I don't think he's going to be very extremely polarized. He's not going to like cause any havoc. He's going to be nothing but a, a great leader and, uh, probably a good stable ship. And plus when they see the old guy, he's going to scramble. He's going to be diving. He's going to inspire those young cats too. So, um, I think he's, he probably end up being probably one of the perfect fits just personality wise and then he knows that he's not going to be he's not going to be the team the quarterback of the future like it's no pressure they can draft a quarterback that can sit there and watch or they can let Heineke learn from him and please 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 learn and if any if any if any quarterbacks are listening to this this is this is free game I see a lot of people throwing one-on-ones on on Instagrams and every everywhere you need to make sure you're practicing the right way. Don't just throw the route. Don't just run the route. Make sure you're running the route or throwing it versus certain coverage. Make sure you're going through your entire progressions. Like, find a way to make yourself better. That's what Ryan Fitzpatrick will do. And so the quarterbacks behind him will see that, and then they will emulate it. Now they'll be a much better pro when it's time for them to actually take the snaps. Yeah, there's no question. He's such a good guy to learn from. He's had such a career, right? I mean, a seventh round pick at a Harvard in 2005, and he's still in the league. Like, it's just amazing when you think about that. Thinking about what Fitzpatrick is, and, and it's not a perfect comp, but is he not like Rex Grossman a little bit? Like, in terms of wanting to throw the ball down the field, being a bit of a risk taker? I mean, Fitzpatrick can run a lot more than Rex ever could, but yeah. it, it seems to me there are some similarities there. But you played with Rex. What do you think about that? I could I could go with that because I mean neither of them are really known to have the biggest arms. Like you know, I mean, hey, it is what it is. But whenever you can play with anticipation and timing, you can throw the ball downfield as long as you get your drop and everything goes fine. Just throw it far uh, as far as you can. You'll get there eventually. Um, you just can't be late on throws and, and go deep. So. Yeah, Rex, Rex Grossman, man, he used to look in the huddle. He would give you this look. He'd call the play, da 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 da. He'd be like, X, go. And he'd be looking at me, and I'm like, dude, what are you looking at? I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> got you. Seattle game? Yeah. That's, that's what happened. Double go.
So that that pass is one of the great passes from that Shanahan run. And, I mean, I'm assuming you consider it to be one of the great plays of your career. 50-yard touchdown reception, <laughs> sexy Rexy to AAA in a win at the Seahawks in 2011. Vintage Rex, vintage Anthony Armstrong. What do you remember about that catch? Because that was something special. Oh, man. So I'll tell you about the whole game. So that was that year where it was like, where did Armstrong go? Um, I basically kind of disappeared. I was on the sideline. I wasn't playing much. Played nothing but special teams. But we got to the end of the game, and it was the last. I think Keenan McCardell was like, oh, Anthony, you're in. Anthony, last second thing. I'm like, all right. So I run in there, and I heard the play call. And I was like, oh, can I say? I ain't going to say nothing bad on your podcast, uh, but we'll keep it PG. I was like, oh, okay. I heard the play call. All right. And Rex is looking at me. I'm like, okay, bet. I'm like, y'all ain't played me all day? Cool. I'm finna ice this game like he's gonna throw it to me I'm, I'm Malson Browner and I was honestly I was hoping it was Richard Sherman <laughs> because I was like dang I want to catch one on him but still ran that route I get the stem go and I just knew eventually I was gonna get there but I mean Brandon Brown is like 6'3 6'4 I'm a 5'10 5'11 guy I can jump a little bit but still 6'3 it's like a power forward and a point guard in high school going on right but I get it going over there and the ball comes up and I really, I, once I've tracked it, I'm like, okay, that's mine. You know, I've already claimed it. Sorry, that's my dog barking. That's all right. That's fine. Um, so yeah, I basically I already claimed that I was going to catch this ball and he threw the ball up there. Um, I just went up there and caught it and I knew I was in the end zone. I had to dance on it. So I hit the Dougie. Uh, I was blowing kisses going on. <laughs> You would have thought this was like a walk-off home run yeah. situation. There was still a lot of football to be played, uh, but I was just super excited. It was kind of a, it was kind of a one. You can't keep me down. You know, you're only gonna play me four plays. Fine, I'm still gonna catch a touchdown. Number one, but two, it was that was the loudest stadium I had ever been in. Right, and then it was immediately the quietest stadium. I had ever been in. So that was a pretty cool experience. Yeah. And I mean, some of those defensive backs who you just referenced, like that was, those were kind of the early years of the Legion of Boom, like in that Seattle team and defense, you know, it was really starting to come of age. One of the other things I remember about that game was Roy Hallou Jr. leapfrogging Cam Chancellor, like hurtling him on a play in that game. So that, that, that was a wild game and, and you guys pull it off. You know, I, I think about Rex and like, no doubt, like he threw a lot of picks. I mean, it, it didn't ultimately work out here, but he seemed to me to be like such a guy's guy, such a dude, like such a great teammate to have. I, am I right in saying that? Oh yeah. I, I really enjoyed hanging out with Rex. I mean, he was definitely very relaxed. I mean, if you want to go play golf a little bit, he was down to play golf. I mean, he was going to shoot, shoot hoops with you. Really do whatever, you know. He was he he loved playing the game. Um, always went off script, and I, and I bet that's probably why some people you know didn't like it so much. But <laughs> like, there's a there's a difference between going off script and because you don't know what's going on, and going off script because hey, I see something and I'm I'm giving you the look, you know. Like he he would throw he would make you aware as a receiver anytime you're out there because hey, for me, like if he saw a matchup he liked. He would go off script. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember in practice, it was a, a live drill, and they were uh, the defense was blitzing, and I was it was a bunch right. I was at the point uh, playing. At that point, I guess it was the Gator or the Z. Either way, I'm at the point. I had to run this little over route, which is basically to hold the mic, uh, hold the safety, so the wide curl can widen, and they can just throw this curl for ten yards. Well, the linebackers blitzed, and my matchup was like I think a safety and. 
I broke across the way, or no, it was like London Fletcher was trying to relate to me from faking the blitz. And I just ran up over the top and he just dropped back and just dropped it over the top of just beautiful little throw, just catch it in stride and run away from him because there was no safety and it was, it was completely unscripted. And so with, with Rex, you would definitely on, be on top of your game because you knew that the ball could show up. You just had to be, be ready for it. No doubt. No doubt. And you flourished with Rex and also with Donovan McNabb in 2010. Like we said, number three in the NFL that season in yards per catch at 19.8. Uh, I mean, look, it wasn't a great team that year. You guys only went six and 10. It was that first Mike Shanahan year, but you did do some things, uh, offensively. Did you prefer one quarterback over the other? I mean, there was a lot of drama that year, right? Donovan feuding with the Shanahans, eventually being benched in favor of Rex. When it came to McNabb versus Grossman, which one did you prefer that year? That year, I just wanted, I just wanted to know who it was going to be, frankly. You know, I, we were doing, we were doing fine with, with, uh, with, with Donovan. I think it was that game in, in Detroit where it was like the final two minute drive and they made a switch and I was like, okay. And, Selfishly, I was like, "All right, I'm sitting here at like 90 yards. I need one more catch to get my first hundred yards." <laughs> and yes, we wanted to win, yeah. um, but you know that was a switch, and it was just a little awkward. But still, at the end of the day, I was just always trying to show up and and just make sure I stayed on the team. Uh, but I just wanted some consistency. I think yeah. that if there's all, all the great teams have consistency, you know what I mean? I mean, shoot, Pittsburgh hasn't. They've had three head coaches ever. You know, like if you your whole life, you only know two, one or two head coaches for a team. Like that's kind of crazy. So, I think that if you can get to being consistent on the field and on across the board, it's going to help out a lot. Yeah. Why do you think it didn't work out for McNabb with Washington? Uh, all everything I would have to guess would be stuff you hear here in hindsight. Maybe they didn't. They didn't. Kyle and him didn't didn't really mesh well offensively, or I'm not sure. I'm not certain because I thought I thought things were cooking, and I was thinking this the other day. I mean, for a while I was kind of fanboying it out. I was like, man, this is Donovan McNabb. Yeah, I'm playing football in the league. I was happy to be there, but I didn't see it. They they never whatever disagreements they had, it never spilled into anything to where the team would see it. So I I wouldn't know. I really have no clue. Because I thought they, I thought it would work. I thought you know he had the arm to get the ball downfield, had enough ability to get outside. But hey, things happen, I guess, right? When you look back at that 2010 team, of course, what's so interesting now is what has happened with so many of the assistants on that staff, right? Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, Matt Lafleur. Did you think back then that you you could have this like gold mine of future uber successful head coaches on that staff, or did that not really strike you back in 2010? You know, at, back at that time, um, Sean McVay was the one that he stood out because um, he kind of worked his way. Uh, he was like just an offensive assistant and like a t- assistant tight ends coach and yeah. had the position. And that was my second year. And I, you could see the way that – I could tell the way that tight ends were prepared. It was different than the year before. Not 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 saying that they weren't prepared. Okay, the year prior, but there was a different, it was a little bit more, you know, cause he, he had him taking tests and he was like, Hey, let's meet before the meeting and just go over a couple of things. And he's like, I want to make sure y'all are on it. And if you remember, Fred Davis had a, had a hell of a start of that season. Yep. You know, so he was, he was looking like, you know, he was going to be the dude for a while. Um, 
And I think that was from Sean helping prepare that. And then obviously I didn't really get to work with Matt uh, too directly just because he was working with the quarterbacks the whole time. But then I ran into him again. Was he? No, he didn't go to Cleveland. No, he went to Cleveland. Went to Tennessee. He went. He went. He did go to Tennessee. Yeah, for a little bit. Because then Kyle came over there. Um, But you know, Sean. I saw something in Sean. Uh, Matt was always very quiet, so I bet he was much. He was probably just soaking in so much information, and he had the ability to work with all those quarterbacks. Uh, I definitely saw something in Sean. Yeah. But when you look back at it now, it's like, dude. You got two Super Bowl attendees and <laughs> one of them almost, you know, it's like, you had them in the, in I know. the thing, but. I know. It's, it's remarkable. It's above my, it's above my pay, it's above my pay grade. Yeah. You know, we're all still trying to figure that part of it out. I mean, you know, with Mike, obviously you had the great 2012 season, but everything fell apart in 2013 and, uh, the whole RG3 saga. So with Mike though, and, and I remember him talking about you in 2010 because he, he basically said something along the lines of like, you know, obviously you were on the practice squad in 2009 and, and Mike, you know, in that raspy voice said, you know, one day I saw this guy running real fast and I said, who is that guy? You know, and you go from being a practice squatter in 09 to playing in 15 games with 11 starts in 2010. From your perspective, how did that happen? Like, how did you go from practice squad in 09 to being essentially the team's number two receiver in 2010? Oh, man. Okay, so it actually goes, I'm not going to tell the whole, whole story. It goes back to when I was there in 09. I got there in, like, October. Um, Morocco Brown brought me in. Um, I had worked out probably a month prior, and they were like, we like you, but, you know, we, we'll, we'll see if we end up signing. So I was I was in I was in Jacksonville for a workout, and then I got the call that Washington wanted to sign me. Jacksonville was trying to pit a pat around. I was like, I'm going to get this money. Uh, so I came to Washington. Get to the last week of the year, you know, they could pick you up off a of practice squad. Jacksonville tried to claim me. And they're like, hey, you'll make you active. We'll go play against Cleveland. Uh, for And I wasn't going to play, but, you know, I was going to be on their roster. Uh, Washington was like, hey, you know, Morocco was like, look, we're getting a new coach. At that, at that point, we already knew Zorn was out. Um, I think I think everybody knew that it was going to be Mike Shanahan. Um, and at that point, you know, I had been in Washington for a couple of months. Like, I had kind of digged it. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually bet on meeting a whole new quarterback, a whole new – well, not necessarily quarterback, a whole new coaching staff. I'm going to bet on myself, right? Like, I'm going to stay here. One, I already know some people. Um, really don't like moving. Um, but the fact that, hey, he's brand new, he don't know nobody. You know, it don't matter who anybody that's been drafted before me who was on the roster currently, it's a blank slate to me. That's the way I looked at it. So I, I bet on myself. Um, and then getting into that off season, like right when we were able to look at, look at tape, I was just watching tape, studying, just get out there running routes. And I mean, I just continued to make plays. Uh, Donovan would throw that sucker deep and I would go up and catch it. And it was just a, it was every day, you know, it was, that was just what I did. I remember riding, riding the training camp with Brandon Banks, listening to Rick Ross every day, MC Hammer, get in there, go make a play every single day. Um, eventually I was on the team. Honestly, I didn't think I made the team. Here's what happened. We're in Arizona and the, and uh, Mike Shanahan says, Hey guys, not everybody's going to play in this last game. Here are the people. It's like 19 people. Here are the people that aren't playing. Clinton Portis. Santana Moss, 
you know, Chris Cooley, you know, Kurt, you know the, the, the names, the expected names. And then here come little old Anthony Armstrong. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. I'm going to get cut. Like, no, there's no way. How are you going to not let me play in this last game? And I had a good preseason, three games good preseason. And everybody's like, congrats, too. And I'm like, no, nah, bro, I need to play. They're like, no, nah, man, you made it. And I'm like, no, nah, not until I know. So I actually didn't celebrate until I made the roster and I cleared, like, that the league year started. So it was all just about showing up and going to work, man. That's, keep your head down, keep chopping wood. That's really cool to hear that. And I remember that Mike would do that, right? He'd have guys, like, go for a jog before that final preseason game, but so many of the people – wouldn't play. The, the thing too, I remember about that uh, preseason game at the Cardinals was he had, if you remember, Albert Hainsworth playing in the fourth quarter. That's <laughs> yeah. his, yeah. his like punishment to Big Al for being out of shape when he showed up. And of course that whole feud. So that's, that's actually kind of a legendary preseason game uh, for the hardcore Washington football fan. And yeah, you mentioned McNabb. Uh, you guys had a good thing going there. And, you know, we talked about the big bomb you caught from Rex in the win at Seattle in 11. You had that 48-yard touchdown catch from Donovan and that overtime win over the Packers in 2010. So you had a big moment with, with each of the starting quarterbacks in 2010. Oh, yeah, that was my first touchdown, too. So, you know, I was hyped. Um, it's actually behind me. It's, uh, it's on the wall. And I – for a while, I didn't put that stuff up. I was just kind of didn't put it up, and I put it up more recently. And I'm like, you gotta be proud of that stuff. But yeah, that one, that one was fun because uh, number one, it, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have been that difficult. Right? I mean, it shouldn't have been as dramatic. But it made for a great rookie card. And I remember that play call. And the play call, I knew it was me. I knew I was like, okay, this is me. Bet bench post all day. I got it. Get the split. I look up. I got the cover two. I'm like, oh, look at that. Somebody been studying tape, you know, because they know Kyle studied tape. He's like, if we get into a cut split, they're going to give us a cover two. That's the check. Perfect. You one on one with the safety. All right, man. Me and Charlie Pepper. He's from Plano, by the way. Um, so I'm running my route. I go bend out to the to the bench and I break to the post and I look up and the ball isn't there. And I'm like. Now, it's supposed to be here. In my head, I've learned the offense enough that there's a certain amount of time to, 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 to break out, but boom, ball's up, you catch it and see, you know, boom. Ball wasn't there. Then it comes out a little bit later. I was like, oh, there it is. So I had to look back. I had to track where I was at, then look back and find the ball, then elevate over Charlie and catch it. So that was pretty exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that. that I I can only imagine, man. That was a great win, too. Packers, of course, ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. Well, look, Anthony, uh, great to talk with you here. Uh, happy birthday again, and uh, really good to get your insight, reminisce a little bit. All the best to you, man. Best of luck. Appreciate it. I appreciate you. All right, good stuff there from former Washington receiver Anthony Armstrong. We did not get good stuff, or at least enough good stuff, uh, from the Capitals on Tuesday night. A rare loss for the Capitals in this 2020-2021 season. A 5-2 loss at the New York Rangers. Caps falling to 23-8-4 on the year. Just the third regulation loss for the Caps over the last 19 games. I mean, we've been spoiled by the Caps here so far this season. The Caps just don't lose, especially in regulation. It happened on Tuesday night for, again, just the eighth time in 35 games this season. Now, what's interesting about the Caps is this. The Caps, with this loss to the Rangers on Tuesday night, fell to 2-4-0 and 
against the Rangers this season. The Rangers have been the Caps kryptonite. The Rangers have been the Caps daddies so far this year. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, uh, you have to say that. There's no other way to say that. Caps are 2-4-0 against the Rangers, but 21-4-4 against every other team in the NHL so far this season. So that's been a bugaboo for the Caps. The Rangers have had the Capitals number for whatever reason. And this game on Tuesday night, it ends up being a 5-2 final. Caps were up 2-0 in the first period. Caps were up 2-1 in the third period, but ended up losing this game. Ended up allowing the Rangers to score the game's final five goals, including four goals in that third period. Caps did win the puck possession battle. They, per natural stat trick, had 39 five-on-five shot attempts to the Rangers' 37, including 12 high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Rangers' nine. The game really came down to goaltending, and the Caps' goaltender wasn't very good, and the Rangers' goaltender was very good. Vitek Vanacek was the Caps' starting goaltender on Tuesday night. Started for just the fourth time over the last 10 games, right? We've seen so much more of Ilya Samsonov here lately. And Vanacek stopped just 22 of the 26 shots on goal that he faced. And per natural stat trick, Vanacek stopped just five of the nine high danger shots on goal that he faced. Conversely, the Rangers goaltender, Igor Sesterkin, he stopped 30 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced, including per natural stat trick, 10 of the 11 high danger shots on goal that he faced. I mean, I always think that that's a great way to judge how good a goaltender truly is, or how well at least that goaltender played. How did he do against the high danger shot? How did he do against those shots on goal that he's not necessarily supposed to stop or that are of particular difficulty, right? Natural stat trick is a very good site that, among other things, rates shot attempts. And so, okay, if you're a goaltender, like maybe you make a bunch of saves, but did you stop a bunch of what are classified as low danger shots? Or did you have to actually face a bunch of high danger shots? Well, on Tuesday night, Vanacek went just five of nine on the high danger shots on goal that he faced. Shesterkin went 10 of 11 on the high danger shots on goal that he faced. Now, of course, as is almost always the case when a goaltender struggles, it's not just on the goaltender. Caps had some real issues on Tuesday night when it came to turnovers. You look at the Rangers' third goal of the game. The defenseman, Adam Fox, an even strength goal, 6-32 into the third period for a 3-2 Rangers lead. The puck is in the Caps' defensive zone. TJ Oshie, while along the left boards above the left circle, tries to pass or clear the puck, but it gets deflected to where it remains in that Caps' defensive zone. The loose puck gets corralled by Artemi Panarin, who's known as the Breadman, right? Panarin is his last name, near the blue line. The Breadman makes a nice pass to Fox, who skates the puck through the right circle, then beats Vanacek high in glove side with a backhanded shot. Later in that third period was, to me, the worst goal of the game given up by the Caps. And this was, again, the Breadman doing the Caps dirty. And Artemi Panarin even strand goal, 15-41, into the third period for a 4-2 Rangers lead. Caps have the puck in their offensive zone, but the puck is intercepted by Rangers defenseman Brendan Smith in the left corner. He then fires an outstanding pass deep into the neutral zone to a wide-open Panarin near the blue line just before the Caps' defensive zone, and Panarin beats Vanacek on a one-on-none breakaway on a backhanded shot in the low slot. That's a tough spot to put Vanacek in, no doubt, one-on-none. The bread man is coming in. But you do want to see the goaltender make that stop. Vanacek unable to do so. But make no mistake, this wasn't just all about Vanacek on Tuesday night. Caps had some bad turnovers that put Vanacek in some rough spots. And Vitek, you know, again, it's been kind of a dicey last few weeks for him. At times he does look good, but at times he looks sketchy. Looks sketchy on Tuesday night. His previous outing, that 4-3 win over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena 
this past Thursday night. Vanacek was the Caps' starting goaltender for just the third time in seven games. He stopped 21 of the 24 shots on goal that he faced. Actually stopped all four of the high-danger shots on goal that he faced per natural stat trick. But he gave up a goal on a medium-danger shot on goal and gave up two goals on low-danger shots on goal. Some other notes from this Caps loss at the Rangers on Tuesday night. Lars Eller was back, so that was good news. He had missed the previous seven games due to a lower body injury. Actually ended up finishing second on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick. Uh, Alex Ovechkin went pointless, but he did have a game-high seven shot attempts, though just two shots on goal. And he did actually also finish with the Caps' third-worst five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick. And TJ Oshie, who actually had the Caps' worst five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick, he had a power play goal, 223 into the first period for a one nothing Caps lead. Caps went one for three on the power play. So it was good to see that at least because the Caps came into the game 0 for 12 on the power play over the previous five games. Look, the Caps aren't going to win every game, all right? I mean, it's kind of felt that way for so much of this year, but you're going to have some games that are disappointing and Tuesday night's loss at the Rangers certainly qualifies as that. And again, it is notable here, the Rangers have done the Caps dirty so far this season. So the Caps remain at 50 points, still tied atop the NHL, but now with two teams, not just the Tampa Bay Lightning, also the Florida Panthers. So three teams that got to know each other very well in the old Southeast division, Caps, Lightning, and Panthers tied atop the NHL at 50 points. Caps are two points ahead of both the New York Islanders and the Pittsburgh Penguins atop the East division, and the Caps are at Barry Trotz and the Islanders Thursday night at 7. The four biggest questions for the Nationals in the upcoming 2021 season. That's coming up in just a bit, but let us first deal with another one of our teams that lost on Tuesday night, the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. And Stephen A. Smith actually coming up in regards to the Wizards over the last 24 hours. But Tuesday night, the Wizards fall to 17-29, and 29, a 114-104 loss to the Charlotte Hornets at Capital One Arena. And so, alas, the Wizards' two-game winning streak, the team's first winning streak in more than a month, is over. You beat the Detroit Pistons at Capital One Arena on Saturday night, beat the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Monday night, but you fall to the Hornets at Cap One on Tuesday night. Uh, look, the Wizards were a very depleted team on Tuesday night. I don't know that the Wizards win this game even if everyone's healthy, all right? I mean, it's not like the Wizards get that benefit of the doubt this year, but Bradley Beal missed a second consecutive game due to the right hip contusion that he suffered in that win over the Pistons on Saturday night. Davies Bertans missed a sixth consecutive game due to a right calf strain. Uh, Daniel Gafford did not play due to that ugly-looking sprained right ankle that he suffered in that win over the Pacers on Monday night. Raul Neto, who was good in that win over the Pacers on Monday night, suffered a left rib contusion in that game. He did not play on Tuesday night. Wizards have been without without Thomas Bryant for a while due to the partial tear of his left ACL. Wizards have been without Is Smith, to whatever extent that matters, for a while due to a right quad strain. So the Wizards, I mean, they're not that good to begin with, and they're uber depleted on Tuesday night. So yeah, I mean, them losing to the Hornets, not exactly a shocker. Wiz lose for the 11th time in 15 games. Wizards never led in the second half. They, in the fourth quarter, did get to within three at 98-95, but then got outscored the rest of the game 16-9, and a big factor in the game was three-point shooting. You know, for so much of this season, the Wizards have not defended the three well and have not shot the three well, and both things were in effect on Tuesday night. Wizards allowed the Hornets for the game to go 14 of 34 on threes, including 10 of 20 in the first half. 
And conversely, the Wizards themselves went just 10 of 37 on threes, including a putrid 2 of 17 in the second half. Now, there were positives for the Wizards. So Russell Westbrook did have another triple-double, extended his franchise record with his 17th triple-double on the year, 22 points, 15 rebounds, and 14 assists to go with two steals. Uh, and he was efficient in terms of his three-point shooting, 4-9 on threes. Now, he did have five turnovers, and he did go just three of 11 on his twos, but it was another good game overall for Westbrook, including in the final minute of the game, a vile driving and one dunk with his right hand. 36.2 seconds left in the fourth quarter. YouTube this up in case you didn't catch it or, you know, seek it out anyway. Westbrook, that was a nasty dunk from Westbrook. Uh, he made the free throw, by the way. The game was basically over at that point. Uh, the three-point play cut the Wizards' deficit to seven at 111-104. But Westbrook, by and large, does continue to play well. And it was kind of funny last night. Again, shot the three well, didn't shoot the two well. But I mentioned Stephen A. Smith. So Stephen A. Smith on ESPN's first take on Tuesday trolled the Wizards again. Stephen A. loves to troll the Wizards. That's why I play that soundbite all the time. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. And it's so fitting so much of the time. But Stephen A. put out a tweet on Tuesday with a video of what he said on first take. And the tweet read as follows from Stephen A. Utmost respect to Russell Westbrook, but last night's numbers mean absolutely nothing to me. And then he basically goes on to say what's been said about Russell Westbrook many times over the years, that yeah, he puts up some numbers, but the guy's never won anything of real value in the postseason. And look, yes, that's true. He's never won a championship, but he has made an NBA Finals. And this thing of like, Everything Westbrook has done means nothing because he doesn't have a ring. That's such garbage. Like, no, there can be a little bit of nuance with the Russell Westbrook conversation. As I've said many times, the triple-double achievement is spectacular. The frequency with which this guy has generated triple-doubles in his career is spectacular. But he is too often inefficient. That's true. Doesn't usually shoot the three well, commits too many turnovers, especially this season. When it comes to the postseason, yeah, I mean, especially lately, like, he hasn't done a ton in the postseason. His teams haven't gone very far in recent postseasons. But you know what? Westbrook has made the postseason a bunch. I think that counts for something. And like I said, he did make the NBA Finals with, remember, Scott Brooks as the head coach with the Oklahoma City Thunder in 2012. So look, I mean, it's Stephen A. It's first take, all right? This is what they do. They come out with hot takes and then they put them out on social media and it becomes a thing. And again, Stephen A. loves to stick it to the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly, Stephen A. Thank you. But Westbrook overall was good on Tuesday night. Rui Hachimura was good again on Tuesday night. Hachimura is on fire right now. He finished with 30 points on 12 of 25 shooting, four rebounds, and three assists versus two turnovers. Hachimura had that terrible game and that blowout loss to the Philadelphia 76ers back on March 12th, a 127-101 loss at Capital One Arena. Hachimura had zero rebounds in 21 minutes as a starter in that game. Since then, he has been so good. I mean, just to read you some of Hachimura's recent points and rebounds totals. Okay, we'll work backwards. So 30 and four last night, 26 and eight in the win over Indiana on Monday night, 14 and six in the win over Detroit on Saturday night, 21 and nine in that loss at the New York Knicks last Thursday night. Uh, did have just 11 and seven in the loss at the Knicks the previous Tuesday night, but 20 and 10 in the loss at the Brooklyn Nets on March 21st. I mean, like, on and on you can go. He had a game 29 points, 11 boards in that first game after the zero rebound game. Uh, that was that loss to the Milwaukee Bucks, 125-119. 
at Capital One Arena on March 13th. Hachimura has been really good. The Wizards made a smart first round selection when they took Hachimura in that 2019 NBA draft. He's been terrific lately. I definitely want to highlight him. Uh, Robin Lopez is very good for the Wizards off the bench on Tuesday night. 16 points on 8 of 11 shooting and 11 rebounds. But you didn't shoot the three well, like I said. Denny Avdia had a bad game, did start for a third straight game, but just one of 10 shooting, including one of seven on threes and fouled out. You know, Avdia's had a bit of a thing here with committing too many fouls lately. Did have eight rebounds, but uh, didn't shoot well, committed the six fouls. Garrison Matthews uh, went just one of five on threes as well. And Chandler Hutchison, who looked very good in the win over the Pacers on Monday night, just one of six shooting on Tuesday night, including 0 of three on threes off the bench. So the Wiz now 17 and 29, fourth worst record in the Eastern Conference, five and a half games behind the six, seven, and eight teams in the East, the Atlanta Hawks, the Boston Celtics, and the Miami Heat. Wiz are at the worst team in the East, the Detroit Pistons, Thursday night at seven. All right, Major League Baseball's opening day is on Thursday. We will have the Nationals against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Thursday night, a 7.09 first pitch. Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom. And it is time to do what I like to do going into every National season. And that is address the biggest questions for the Nationals in the upcoming season. So I have for you here four big questions. The answers to which will determine the fate of the Nats in 2021. Question number one. Do Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin get back to what they were in 2019? If the answer to this question is yes, then the Nats are in it in 2021. But conversely, if the answer to this question is no, then the Nats are in a lot of trouble. Understand, the Nats in 2020 didn't just have bad starting pitching. They had wretched starting pitching. The Nats finished the 2020 season 27th out of the 30 major league teams in starting pitching ERA at 538. It's not just that the Nats starting pitching was disappointing in 2020. It's that the Nats starting pitching in 2020, truth be told, was abysmal. That can't be the case in 2021. I don't think that it will be the case. I do think you're going to get back to having good starting pitching, especially from the top three in the rotation. The question really is going to be how good is the good. You start with Scherzer going into his age 36 season, the final season of that 70-year, $210 million contract that he signed in January 2015. It's been said of Max that he wasn't at his best in 2020, and he wasn't, but he still was good. Uh, 12 starts, 67 and a third innings, and ERA plus of 118. ERA plus is simply adjusted ERA, adjusted for your home ballpark and your league. 100 is average. 118 means that Max Scherzer, even in 2020, was 18% better than a league average pitcher in the National League. So you can work with that. You can function with that. Would I like to see Max get back to a higher level in 2021? Yes, but I'm not sure how realistic that is. And again, his age 36 season. Remember too, Max has dealt with some various ailments here in recent years, right? The second half of his 2019 season featured all kinds of things going on. He had those two stints on the 10-day injured list. Remember, he got scratched from World Series Game 5, uh, that 7-1 loss to the Houston Astros at Nationals Park. So he's dealt with some stuff here in recent years, but he still is an effective starting pitcher. I don't expect that to change in 2021. Steven Strasburg, going into his age 32 season, the second season of that 70-year, $245 million contract that he was re-signed to in December 2019. Made just the two starts last year, underwent season-ending surgery last August 26 to alleviate carpal tunnel neuritis. Dealt with a left calf issue 
in spring training. What ended up being a ruptured tendon in his left calf, though it's not as serious as it sounds. Nats need Strasburg to A, stay healthy, and B, be good. And we know if he's healthy, he's probably going to be good. But the big question with Strasburg is the health. Now, he was very healthy in 2019. I actually led the National League Strasburg did in 2019 in innings pitch, 209, and then, of course, won World Series MVP. Uh, but Strasburg, the previous four years, 2015 through 2018, averaged just 24.3 regular season starts per year. This is not a guy with a track record of durability. Does he get back to being healthy in 2021? And then Patrick Corbin, he's going into his age 31 season, third season of a six-year, $140 million contract that he signed in December 2018. He's coming off a terrible 2020. Corbin in 2020, 11 starts, 65 and two-thirds innings, a 99 ERA plus. That's not what he's here to be. Below league average, gave up a major league worst 85 hits, saw strikeouts per nine innings plummet from 10.8 over the previous two seasons to 8.2. His average forcing fastball velocity per Sports Info Solutions, a career worst 90.8 miles per hour. There's a lot not to like about Corbin's 2020. He's not that guy. I, I, I don't think he's that He's going to be better. The question, again, will be how much better. But this is what is anchoring not just your rotation, but your team. Three big money 30-something starting pitchers. Do they stay healthy? Do they all get back to being effective in 2021? Four biggest questions for the Nationals in the 2021 season. Question number two, do at least three everyday Nats beyond Juan Soto and Trey Turner produce at the plate? And I will define produce by using another advanced stat, and that is OPS plus, which is like ERA plus, 100 is league average, above 100 is good. It's OPS, OPS plus is adjusted for your home ballpark and the offensive environment in your league. We know Soto and Turner are going to be good. Now, I say that, and it's kind of funny because each guy had a really bad spring training season. Yes, uh, neither was good in exhibition play, but they have track records. I think they're going to be just fine. The question is, what are you going to get beyond those two? Because that was the biggest problem offensively for the Nats in 2020. You didn't have much beyond Soto and Turner when it came to the lineup. You brought in Kyle Schwarber to be your left fielder. He had a very bad 2020, but he over the years has been a productive offensive player. You brought in Josh Bell to be your primary first baseman. He had a bad 2020, but he's got a track record of having produced, especially as recently as 2019 when he had a monster season for the Pittsburgh Pirates. What you need as much as anything to me is Victor Robles to take that next step forward. Victor Robles over his time at the major league level has not been a very good hitter. His career OPS plus coming into this season is a mere 89. But Robles, as we talked about on Tuesday's podcast, had a very good exhibition season. He is going to be the Nationals leadoff guy at least to begin the season. The Nats need him to finally take that next step offensively to get on base and not just via the hit by pitch. He's got to draw his walks and to hit for power because Robles has pop. He can hit for power. If Robles blossoms offensively this year, I think that is so big for the Nats, not just this season, but for seasons to come. But you're going to need more than that, right? Even if it's Soto, Turner, Robles, you still need more than that. So does Bell bounce back? Does Schwarber bounce back? Guys like Starling Castro, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, what do they end up providing? Can you give me Beyond Soto and Turner, three guys, each with an OPS plus of above 100. Okay, so again, above league average. If, if you can have in the Nationals everyday lineup, five guys with OPS pluses above 100, Soto, Turner, and three other people, now you're cooking with some gas with the lineup. Now you're in business 
with the offense. I think you can't get that. You know, the, all, not all these guys are going to produce, right? Bell, Schwarber, Robles, Castro, Harrison, Gomes. Like, they're not all going to be great. But can you give me three out of the bunch? Can you give me three out of those guys who give you OPS pluses above 100? Four biggest questions for the Nationals in the 2021 season. Do Brad Hand and Tanner Rainey dominate? In addition to the Nationals starting pitching not being good in 2020, the Nationals bullpen, again, was not good in 2020. You know, we've kind of just come to accept this, that the Nats don't have a good bullpen. Don't ever accept this, all right? Plenty of teams have very good bullpens. The Nats just seemingly never do. Nats in 2020, just 23rd out of 30 major league teams in relief pitching ERA at 468. If the bullpen is going to be good this season, it's going to be good, I believe, because of Brad Hand and Tanner Rainey. The Nats signed Brad Hand in late January, one-year $10.5 million contract. He's going into his age 31 season. He is the rare reliever who has a track record of consistent excellence. Most relievers are year-to-year. Hand has not been. Had a very good 2020 for the Cleveland Indians. Previous five seasons, so you're looking at 2016 through 2020, very good numbers with both the Indians and the San Diego Padres, including a strikeouts per nine innings of 12.2. Now, Hand, as we talked about on Tuesday's podcast, did not have a good exhibition season. What does that mean? I have no idea. But Hand overall has been very good for five years running, which is not something you could say about most relievers. Hand is a lefty. That's something that can really serve you well in the National League East, right? Which features the likes of Freddie Freeman, Bryce Harper, Michael Conforto, all very good lefty batters. And Brad Hand is someone who I believe could be the Nationals' ace reliever in 2021. Like you talk about who's going to be the Nats' top reliever, like maybe their closer, although I don't know necessarily that Davey's going to have designated roles in terms of like you're the closer. I think it's more who's your top high leverage reliever, who's your ace reliever, who's the guy you go to, you know, maybe yes to close out games, but also maybe yes, runners on second and third and just one out in the bottom of the eighth, that kind of a thing. Hand profiles as that guy. Does he dominate? And does Tanner Rainey dominate? Tanner Rainey Going into his age 28 season, he had a very good 2020 for the Nats. 20 into third innings, 266 ERA, 14.2 strikeouts per nine innings. Now, Rainey during spring training dealt with a muscle strain near his right collarbone. Didn't pitch much. We're not quite sure right now where Rainey is at. But with Hand and Rainey, you have two high strikeout flamethrowers. You have two guys coming off very good 2020 campaigns. And you have two guys who realistically could be back and staples for the Nationals when it comes to that bullpen. And if you get those two guys doing as we know they can do, then the bullpen can be at least decent in 2021. Now, you're going to need more than just these two guys doing well, but I think it's going to start with Hand and Rainey. Can they give you that one-two punch at the back ends of games that provide certainty, where you feel like, all right, if you just get the game to, say, the eighth inning, you're in good shape here because you know you got hand and rainy or rainy and hand work in the eighth and the ninth. It would be nice though for others to emerge, right? Daniel Hudson had a very bad 2020, had a very bad 2021 exhibition season. What are you going to get out of him? Of course, he was good for the Nats in 2019. Will Harris, we know is beginning the season on the injured list. Where is he going to be at uh, going into his age 36 season? You know, you look at somebody like Kyle Finnegan, Wander Suero, you know, people like that. 
it's one or more of those guys going to emerge. Uh, Luis Avalon, the lefty, we talked about him on Tuesday's podcast. Can he be a guy who does well against the many lefty batters of high quality in the National League? So the bullpen isn't just about hand and rainy, but to me, it starts with hand and rainy. Do they dominate? If they do, I think you're in at least decent shape with this Nationals bullpen. And then the fourth and final question for the Nationals in the 2021 season, can the Nats defense just be mediocre? It's not going to be good. I have like zero faith the Nats defense will be good. The Nats have not ranked in the top 10 in the majors in defensive runs saved since 2014. This is not a new problem for the Nats being bad defensively, but it's a particularly big problem going into 2021 because the Nats in 2020 were dead last in the majors in defensive runs saved at minus 45. And the Nats, at least on paper, have only gotten worse defensively this past offseason. Josh Bell signed to be or acquired to be traded to be the Nats' primary first baseman. An awful defensive reputation. Kyle Schwarber signed to be the everyday left fielder. An awful defensive reputation. Juan Soto moving from left field to the more important right field in terms of positions on the defensive spectrum, coming off a bad defensive season. Soto essentially has not been good defensively in two of his three seasons at the major league level, although interestingly, did demonstrate significant defensive improvement in 2019. I hope he gets back to that. But, you know, you look at somebody like Trey Turner, as great as he's been offensively the last few years, especially last season, Trey Turner in 2020 ranked dead last among 20 qualified shortstops in defensive runs saved at minus seven. The Carter Keyboom disaster at third base has meant Starling Castro has to move from second base, his best defensive position, to third base, which he's not been bad at, but he's also not been great at. Uh, Castro in 2019, zero defensive runs saved at third base for the Miami Marlins over 366 and two-thirds innings. Zero defensive runs saved is not a bad total. It just means you're league average, but you know, you're not obviously achieving excellence doing that. Uh, Josh Harrison, an older guy, going to be playing second base for you. Victor Robles, I think, is the key for the Nationals defensively in 2021. Victor Robles in 2019 led all major league outfielders in defensive runs saved at plus 23 in center field. But Robles in 2020 totaled minus four defensive runs saved in center field. He bulked up. He changed his body composition. It ended up being for the worse. He was slower. He wasn't nearly as good defensively in 20 as he was in 19. Now he's gone back to his body being more or less as it was in 2019. He had that very good spring training season as a batter. Does he get back to that defensive excellence we saw in 2019 uh, in center field? If he does, then that's a big time boost for the Nats because you always want to be strong defensively everywhere, but especially up the middle, right? Catcher, shortstop, second base, center field. Having Victor Robles patrol the outfield well, especially with those two, uh, shall we say, defensive anchors uh, to his left and right there in Schwarber and Soto, uh, that's key. So if Robles can get back to his 2019 defensive excellence, that's going to help. But you still have major defensive concerns all over the place for the Nationals on the diamond. And so that's the question with the Nationals defensively. Can the defense just be mediocre? It's almost impossible to construct a realistic scenario under which the Nationals are good defensively in 2021. But can you not be dead last as you were in 2020? Can you at least be like middle of the pack in 2021? Is that possible? Like I said, Nats have not been in the top 10 in the majors in defensive runs saved since 2014. The rankings over the last few seasons, dead last in 2020, 20th in 2019, 25th in 2018, 25th 
in 2017. It's not been good. It's been one bad defensive team after another, and especially for a pitching-dependent team, a starting-pitching-dependent team as the Nats are, and especially with some of those starting pitchers not being swing-and-miss guys. You know, John Lester is not a strikeout guy anymore. Joe Ross is not a strikeout guy anymore. If Patrick Corbin still has velocity problems, he's not as much of a strikeout guy as he's been. If you've got starting pitchers putting balls in play, allowing for balls to be put in play, you need to be adept at turning those batted balls into outs. And the Nationals have not been over these last few seasons. Can you be better in that regard in 2021? All right, so I gave you the four biggest questions for the Nationals in 2021. I will give you now the two biggest questions for the Orioles in 2021. We view the Orioles on this podcast very differently than we view the Nationals. The Nats are trying to win in 2021. The Orioles essentially are not. Now, I say that, like, yes, the players for the Orioles are going to try to do well. The manager, Brandon Hyde, is trying to win games. But the organization, very clearly, is still in tank mode, is still in rebuild mode. The Orioles have spent nothing over these last few offseasons. The Orioles have traded away a bunch of key players over the last few years. And the Orioles are still trying to build this thing back up. The Orioles have been in the midst of a total teardown, a total purification of things. It's exactly what the team needed to do, but it is a lengthy process. And we ain't through the process just yet, man. There is more pain to come before hopefully the pleasure. So to me, here are the two big questions through which to view the Orioles 2021 season, a season that almost certainly is going to end up as another 95 plus loss season, probably a hundred losses, but we'll see. You never know what this kind of thing. So number one, and nothing matters more than this. Do the young players rise up and offer true hope for the future? In terms of the many young promising players on the Orioles season opening roster, do guys like Ryan Mountcastle, Austin Hayes, Anthony Santander, Cedric Mullins, DJ Stewart, if he ever gets over this left hamstring injury, do those guys, those position players give you reason to believe? Do they do well? Do they grow as the season goes on? Do they come off to you as cornerstones, as building blocks for the future? Chances are they're not all going to hit. It would be lovely if they did, but chances are that's not going to happen ultimately. But can at least two, three, maybe four of those guys end up being real pieces for the Orioles moving forward? I'm very excited to watch Mountcastle. O's took him with the number 36 overall pick in the 2015 draft. He was ranked by MLB Pipeline this past January as the number 77 prospect in all of baseball. Last season, 140 major league plate appearances, 333 batting average, 386 on base percentage, 492 slugging percentage. He hit five homers. He's going into just his age 24 season. It's really exciting to think about what he could end up being. Santander, he's going into his age 26 season. This is a guy who Dan Duquette selected in the Rule 5 draft in December 2016. Remember, Duquette used to love that Rule 5 draft. Uh, but Santander is a guy who's been good for the Orioles. Last season, 165 plate appearances, a 575 slugging percentage. And he, over the previous two years, 2019-2020, plus 13 defensive runs saved in right field. So you've got some pieces to work with here. You know, Austin Hayes has shown signs uh, to think that he could end up being good. DJ Stewart, number 25 overall pick in the 2015 draft out of Florida State. You know, Cedric Mullins, I don't know that he's ever going to be a great hitter, but the guy's got speed. The guy is someone who could maybe end up being a nice piece for you moving forward. So how do 
the young potential building blocks end up doing. And then you arrive at the pitching. And with the Orioles, look, the the real promising young pitchers remain in the minors, right? Talking about guys like Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. But Bruce Zimmerman, the lefty, has made the Orioles season opening rotation. The O's got him from the Atlanta Braves in that July 2018 trade that sent Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to the Braves. Uh, Dean Kramer made the Orioles season opening rotation. The O's got him from the Los Angeles Dodgers in that July 2018 trade involving Manny Machado. How do those guys end up doing? To say nothing of somebody like Keegan Aiken, who got option to AAA Norfolk this past Friday evening, but does Aiken at some point make it back to the major league level and maybe do some good things for you? There is still a lot to come, hopefully, from the Orioles farm system, right? I mentioned those two pitchers. You obviously still have the Orioles' last two first-round picks, Adley Rutschman and Heston Kerstad, uh, the catcher and the outfielder, respectively. So, yeah, it's not like this season is make or break for the Orioles' future, but you do want to see these guys do well. You do want to see these guys grow as the season goes on. The second biggest question for the Orioles in 2021 is, do the Orioles continue to sell? And I hope the answer is yes, but two things are going to go into whether that answer is yes. One is how the potential trade ships do, and two, is the team truly willing to sell off all of these potential trade ships? Matt Harvey has made the Orioles as their number two starter. I've said it many times, fix them and flip them. He's not here to be here three years from now. He's here to have a halfway decent 2021, and then maybe you can flip him for a prospect of prospects the way you flipped Tommy Malone to the Atlanta Braves last season. Michael Franco was signed in March to be the Orioles' everyday third baseman. Michael Franco going into his age 28 season, he's not here to be here three, four years from now. He's on a one-year contract Hopefully, he can rehab himself a bit. You know, Michael Franco's an interesting guy. Has had some success with the Philadelphia Phillies, but overall, mostly disappointed with the Phils. But then did have a pretty decent 2020 for the Kansas City Royals. So if you can catch a little lightning in a bottle with Franco, he's halfway decent. Maybe you can flip him at some point in the 2021 season. But the two really intriguing potential trade chips are Trey Mancini and John Means. Do the Orioles view Mancini and Means as here for the long haul, or do the Orioles view Mancini and Means as guys who are kind of in that in-between land of, you know, not old enough to where they're definitely not in your future plans, but not young enough to where you feel like, yeah, they're young building blocks. Trey Mancini is going into his age 29 season. He's due to be a free agent after the 2022 season. It's a great story, right? Coming back from the colon cancer, he was so good offensively for the Orioles in 2019 was Mancini. But realistically, are you going to continue to hold on to him, especially if he does well this year and just kind of hope that he resigns with you after 2022? Like, really? You're going to take that chance? Especially with the guy going into his 30s after this season? Trey Mancini, to me, 100% should be viewed as a trade ship. And it's not as a knock on the guy. It's actually as a compliment to the guy. The Orioles can get back some real quality for Trey Mancini if he plays in 2021 as he did in 2019. But no thank you. I'm not holding on to him as he goes into his 30s and is about to be a free agent after 2022. And I do wonder how the Orioles view John Means. You know, John Means is their opening day starter going into his age 28 season. He's been a bright spot for the Orioles over the last few years, especially in 2019. Wasn't as good in 2020. But are they looking at Means as, yeah, we want him, you know, when we're hopefully good again two, three years from now? Or is it more, yeah, Means, if he's halfway decent again, uh, let's go ahead and flip him. I think the latter should be the answer. I think both Mancini and Means should be viewed as trade pieces. I hope there isn't like any sort of you know emotional tie though to either guy from a standpoint of what well, we can't trade 
uh, Mancini. We can't trade means. Like, no, you can. You can. If you're going to do the total teardown thing, then do it. And the O's have done a good job with it. And the O's also have been basically like unapologetic in terms of trading away guys. You know, this is one of the things I've loved about the approach that Mike Elias has taken. Jose Iglesias was very good for the Orioles last season as their shortstop. Had a 1.3 war per baseball reference over just 39 games. But the O's in December traded Iglesias to the Los Angeles Angels for a couple of pitching prospects. Alex Cobb in 2020 finally was halfway decent for the O's off having been a complete disaster since the O's signed him in March 2018 of that four-year $57 million contract. What the O's do with Cobb this past February traded him and cast to the Angels for the second base prospect, Jemai Jones. So yeah, like that's the approach you need to be taking. Don't fall in love with people. Don't feel like you have to keep anybody if you don't see the guy as being a part of you when you're hopefully back to being good again two, three years from now, then get rid of the guy, 100%. So I hope the O's view things that way, and I hope these guys are good enough in 2021 to where they can be flipped for some quality prospects. Look, it's been a rough last few years for the Orioles. There's no doubt about this. You went from making the playoffs three times in five years, 12, 14, and 16, to now the last three seasons having been atrocious. 2018, 47 and 115. 2019, 54 and 108. And last season, ultimately 25 and 35, but 13 and 27 after a 12 and 8 start. The O's have jettisoned their roster. They've traded away so many, right? Machado, Zach Britton, Gosman, O'Day, Dylan Bundy, Michael Givens, Miguel Castro, and there's more to come. There's no doubt about this, but this is what the Orioles needed to do. My saying for the O's in the midst of this rebuild has been pain now, pleasure later. We're hopefully going to be getting to the pleasure eventually, but for now, in 2021, unfortunately, it's probably going to be more pain. Although again, if the young potential building blocks do well, I think that's going to be exciting and that is going to be a cool thing to follow as the season goes on. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday shapes up to be a very big day, potentially, for the Danny. As the NFL's annual league meeting continues, it is supposed to be on this Wednesday that Danny buying out the minority investors gets officially approved by the other owners. So we could have a ton to be getting into on Thursday's podcast. And of course, it is on that pod that we will continue to prepare ourselves for the 2021 MLB season, talking Nationals and Orioles. But for now, that will do it for you and me. Subscribe, rate, review. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Who is your daddy and what does he do? This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.